Let's go to the bottom of page uh, 63. We've made our decision. We've uttered our prayer. And the book says, Next we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision... Step three was a vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Now, we always like to stop here for just a moment and look at the time element between step three and step four. Uh, We always hear people asking the question, how long should you wait after you do step three until you start on step four? And we hear all kind of answers. Sometimes they'll say, well, 30 days, and maybe 90 days, or maybe six months. Uh, We heard a professional in the field one time counseling people to wait a minimum of two years. And our question back to that person was, how many people have you killed with that statement? Mm -hmm. You see, we're trying to find a way to live where we not only can be sober, but we can have a little peace of mind, serenity, and happiness. And every day that we put off and procrastinate step four is a day that we're still filled with resentments, A day that we're still filled with shame and fear and guilt and remorse. Another day that we don't feel good. And we really don't know how many days we could go without our mind beginning to think about taking a drink. And next thing you know, we've convinced ourselves that it's okay to drink. And we end up drunk all over again. I don't know how many days I could go under those conditions. And frankly, I'm not very interested in finding out. Our book tells us when we should take step four. Step three will have little permanent effect unless at once followed by this strenuous effort, which is step four. And you know that does make sense, doesn't it? As far back as I can remember, four has always followed immediately after three. (laughs) Now knowing that and knowing we might get drunk if we don't get on with step four, Why would we still tend to procrastinate? And I think two or three reasons behind it. Number one is fear. Some of we older members tend to play king off of the mountain with this step. And we tell the newcomer how tough it is. By God, just wait till you get to step four. Blah, 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 blah. We just literally scare them to death. Let us be the first to say today, That if we take step four, according to the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, there is nothing whatsoever to be afraid of. And I think we're all going to see that in just a little bit. Okay, knowing there's nothing to be afraid of, then why would we still tend to procrastinate? And I think probably one of the greatest reasons is simply confusion. For years, we could not see how to do step four, according to the big book. And the reason we couldn't see it is the instructions are there, but they are so simple that we alcoholics, with our keen intellectual alcoholic minds, 
looking for something more complicated, overlook the simplicity of step four. So in our desperation, we read over in step five something about sharing all your life story. And we said, oh, that's what they want us to do in step four, is write our life story so we could share it in step five. That's what I did in the beginning. Now, my life story might not have been important to others, but it must have been to me. There was 92 pages in it. I took it to another poor, suffering human being and asked them to read it, and they did. And he said, not very pretty, is it? And I said, no, it isn't. He said, you'll never have to be that way again. He threw it in the waste paper basket. And I learned nothing from my life story to contribute to my alcoholism. Certainly nothing new. Because everything I wrote down, I already knew it, so nothing new came out of it. And today I realize that 95% of my life story really doesn't have anything to do with my alcoholism anyhow. The fact that I was born in 1929, I don't think that's got a thing to do with my alcoholism. It may have had something to do with somebody else's alcoholism, but not mine. <laughs> the fact that I graduated from high school at age 17 went immediately into the service. I don't think it's got a thing to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I was married at age 21, I don't think it's got anything to do with it. But I tell you what it did do. The 95% that had nothing to do with it very effectively covered up the 5% that did. And I learned nothing from my life story to contribute to my alcoholism. So in our desperation again, somebody in Minneapolis, Minnesota wrote a four-step inventory guide. We took the Minneapolis guide, combined it with the big book, and got more confused yet. Somebody in Dallas, Texas wrote a four-step inventory guide. We took the Dallas guide, combined it with the Minneapolis guide, combined it with the big book, and got more confused yet. I have no idea how many are floating around today. Uh, we saw one that had 20 pages in it. I'll guarantee you if you wasn't crazy as hell when you took it, you would be when you were through with it. It was one of those. All the time the instructions have been here. We just never could see them before because we didn't understand how Bill writes. And I think today, if we can just kind of sit back and relax, look at a few simple ideas, we're going to see how easy this thing really is. There's two things we've got to remember. First, he loved to use comparisons. Talking about one thing that we already know to teach us something new. Also, he did not like to repeat himself using the same words over and over. So he would tell us something, then turn around and tell it again, but use different words the second time. And bearing those two thoughts in mind, I think we can see how simple this thing really is. He starts out by saying, Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. Immediately, he jumps into business. He says, A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. And I think his first comparison is this. You know, if you had a business, and I don't care what it is, selling ladies' purses, men's watches, bicycles, or whatever, if you did an inventory once in a while, and by the way, inventory is defined as a written list of items, if you didn't go in there and make a list of the things that are in there, you wouldn't know what's been stolen that you didn't get paid for. 
If you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's been sold and you need to reorder to put new stock in its place. If you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become damaged. Nobody wants to buy it. It's sitting there taking up valuable floor space day after day after day. You're probably paying interest on borrowed money to put it in there in the first place. If you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become out of style. You need to put it on sale so you can get it out of the store to put something new in its place. If you had a business and you did an inventory once in a while, you probably would go broke, and I think we can all see that. Okay, in our personal lives, we have a business too. Greatest business in the world for us. And it's the business of finding a way to live where we can have a little peace of mind, serenity, and happiness so we don't have to go back to drinking. And if we don't inventory in our personal business, chances are we're not going to find what's damaged and unsaleable in our heads that's going to cause us to go broke too. And going broke for us is simply going back to drinking. So whether we're dealing with a personal business or a business business, in either case, we would probably go broke without the inventory. Now then, he's going to tell us how to take a business inventory. He says, taking a commercial. Now, Dad Burnham, he could have said business again, couldn't he? But he'll use the word commercial, which means the same thing. Taking a commercial inventory. Now, Joe, up here on the screen, and you also have it in your handout material. We're going to have a little picture up here that's going to be called inventory comparison. I think it's step five in your handout sheet. On one side says business, the other one says personal. And we're going to take a few key words out of the, out of the uh, big book and put it under business. He said, taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding, and we're putting fact-finding under business, and a fact-facing process. We're putting fact-facing under business. It is an effort to discover the truth, and we're putting truth under business about the stock in trade and we're putting stock in trade under business the stock in trade is what's in there to sell the ladies purses the men's watches the bicycles or whatever one object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods and we're putting under object under business disclose damaged or unsaleable goods to get rid of them promptly and without regret and we're putting promptly and without regret under business. In other words, we're going to go in there and we're going to try to find the facts. When we find them, we're going to face the facts. We're looking for the truth about the stock in trade. We're trying to find the damaged and unsaleable goods. The good items will not cause us to go broke. Oh, they resell every day, and we're making money off of them. The damaged and unsaleable goods, they're the ones that's blocking the floor space and the shelf space and costing us money. When we finally find them, we're going to try to get rid of them promptly and without regret. We can't put anything new in there in their place until they're gone. We're trying to find the stock in trade that's damaged and get it out of there. If the owner of the business is to be successful, 
He could not fool himself about values. He's got to be honest. Once in a while, he'll try to fool himself. He'll say, well, the reason these ladies aren't buying these purses is they just don't understand what's good for them. You know, he made the decision to buy them. He hates to admit that he made a mistake. And he may keep them in there longer than he should. And if he does, it's going to cost him money every day. Is there anybody in here would have any problem with what he's told us about the business inventory? That we're going to try to find the facts? When we find them, we're going to face them? We're looking for the truth about the stock in trade? We're looking for the damaged and unsaleable goods? When we get rid of them, we're going to, when we find them, we're going to get rid of them promptly and without regret? Always looking for the stock in trade that's damaged? Anybody got any problems there? Okay, now watch it. He used a series of words to tell us how to take our personal inventory, which means basically the same thing. He said we did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly. So we go to step four, and step four says now we're under personal on the right-hand side of the sheet. Step four said we made a searching. And we're putting searching straight across from fact-finding. They mean the same thing. To find the facts, to search out the facts. We made a searching fearless. And we're putting fearless straight across from fact-facing. They mean the same thing. To face the facts, to fearlessly look at them. We made a searching fearless moral. And there's where we got in trouble. We said, oh, damn. There's that list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. And we don't want to look at them, and we sure as hell don't want to show them to anybody else. Now, I'm not sure what old Bill Wilson knew. But I know one thing. This guy understood the English language. And I really believe that if he'd wanted you and I to make a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items, he would have said we made a searching and fearless amoral or immoral inventory he didn't say that he said moral bugged the hell out of us till eventually we went back to the dictionary do you know what the word moral is defined as truth things as they really are the right and wrong of any given situation the truth about things so truth and moral mean exactly the same thing we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of what? Of ourselves. We're the only stock in trade that we have in this business of staying sober. Nobody else can make us sober. And nobody else can make us drink. Oh, I'll agree. They can make us thirsty as hell once in a while. <laughs> but they can't make us drink. We decide whether we drink or not. Now, what part of us decides whether we drink or not? Is it our body or is it our mind? The real problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind. So we're going to look inside ourselves, in our minds, and we're going to find those flawed thinking processes, which is the damaged and unsaleable goods, that block us off from God. Now, we've made a decision to turn our will over to God. And as long as our mind is filled with damaged and unsaleable goods, then God can't direct our thinking. 
we're going to have to find them. And after we once find them, then we're going to get rid of them promptly and without regret. And when those flawed thinking processes leave our minds, then our mind is opened up for God's thinking to enter. But it's only after they're gone that God can enter. Now, there are three common manifestations of a life run on self-will, and we've already talked about them. The flawed thinking processes in our mind that blocks God out are resentments, fear, guilt and remorse associated with the harms done to other people. And as long as our mind is occupied with those thoughts, then God's thoughts can't come in. It's just that simple. Now, I like to look at my head up here as a little bitty store, not much, a little bitty quick trip or 7-Eleven, not a hell of a lot in it, never has been. (laughs) Over here in this part of my store, I've got some display cases, and they are filled with resentments. Damn him. Damn her. By God, I'll show them. Bloody, bloody, blah, 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 blah. Those display cases are already full. God simply cannot get in there because he is blocked out by the damaged and unsaleable goods called resentments. Over here in this part of my store, I've got a little file cabinet. It's filled with fear. Oh, my God. What's she going to do when she finds out about this one? Oh, my God. What's the banker going to say when that check hits there this time? He's already told me he's going to file on me next time. Oh, my God. Is that my car sitting out in the front? Front end torn up? Don't know how. Oh, my God. And on and on and on. God can't get in there. He's very effectively blocked out by those fears. Back here in the back of my store, I've got a little file room, and it's full of guilt and remorse. God dwells on each of us. We know the difference between right and wrong. We do these things that hurt other people. We're scared to death what they're going to do when they find out, and the guilt and remorse begins to eat us up. God can't get in that storeroom. He's already blocked out of there. Have an emergency phone call for whom? Pam or Paul Madison. Who? Pam or Paul Madison. Pam or Paul Madison. Okay. I hope everything's all right. Now, if I want God to direct my thinking, then I'm going to have to do something about the removal of these resentments and these fears and this guilt and remorse. And if I can remove them, then God's thinking can enter into my mind and direct those portions of my mind where he was effectively blocked out. Now, my book is getting ready to show me just exactly how to look at these things truthfully. It's getting ready to show me how to remove them then the greatest thing it's going to show me is how to keep them from coming back in the future. And if I'll do my part, then God can direct my thinking. But until I've done my part, God can't. It's just that simple. He says, we did exactly the same thing with our lives. We took stock honestly, truthfully, morally. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways and what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment is the number one offender 